Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, it's been long said in my family, at least, that puzzles such as crosswords and Sudoku's help keep the mind sharp. Well, there's now science to back that up. New research shows older participants who do online puzzles have similar memory and concentration skills as much younger folks who don't. We decipher why that could be. We meet a Nova Scotia TikToker who's earned a huge following with her helpful tips about how to save money on groceries. She joins me to share some of her secret recipes. It is the deadly mushroom mystery that's gripped Australia. A few weeks ago, five people sat down for lunch, and within a week, three of them were dead, and a fourth remains in hospital in critical condition. Police said they suspect the meal contained what are known as death cap mushrooms, one of the most poisonous varieties in existence, and one that can be found here in Canada as well. We speak to a mushroom expert to find out more about them. But first, we head to Yellowknife, where thousands of people were on the move today, heading south to safety either by road or by air, with a wildfire threatening the capital of the Northwest Territories. Global News' Jamie Dahl has been on the ground all day and shares what she's seen and heard. I'm really anxious. And uh, I'm scared. I um, I, I don't, emotional. Uh, God, just so many emotions. I don't even know where to begin. Like it's just, I'm in shock. We begin tonight in Yellowknife. It's no game, obviously. A very real exodus of some 20,000 people uh, today from the capital of the Northwest Territories. They left by vehicle. They left by bus. They were being taken to the airport to leave on chartered aircrafts, including Angela Canning, who you just heard from there. She was packing up a camper with food, clothing, and other stuff to make that long and sometimes fraught journey south from Yellowknife to the Alberta border. She said she never pictured the day that they would need to abandon the city. The territory moved ahead with that phased evacuation of the capital late yesterday, telling people to leave by noon tomorrow, so the clock is ticking. Here's what Mayor Rebecca Alti had to say last night. There is a possibility that without rain, the fire reaches the outskirts of Yellowknife by the weekend. It is approaching, but there's time to complete the community evacuation. So the clock is ticking and the fire, by the way, continues to move. While many have left in their own vehicles, for others that's just not possible. So hundreds of people lined up today outside local a local high school uh, to register for flights and or ground out transportation out of the city. Late today, the Canadian forces announced four more military aircraft are being deployed to assist with those evacuation efforts, including two more Hercules, a C-17, a Polaris as well. They'll come from CFB Trenton. Earlier in the week, the forces had already started to fly out evacuees on two Hercules aircraft. And the Northwest Territories Fire Service says they are, quote, very tough days ahead with strong winds expected tomorrow and Saturday that will blow the wildfires apparently closer to Yellowknife. But right in the midst of all of it on a day like no other in Yellowknife is Global's Jamie Dahl. And she's seen it all today. Jamie, thanks so much. Hi, Ben. It's it's. I, I was watching some pictures that have been posted recently by Tim Lee, who I know you know, uh, and it, it, it's looking pretty quiet in Yellowknife tonight. It's looking quiet. It looks like people have have followed followed the evacuation order. We got the last convenience store that was open. We think uh, for rations for the next few days. Uh, it is yeah. It's like tumbleweed quiet um, here tonight. But there are still a lot of people that are in town that haven't evacuated. Uh, a lot of people that were in that lineup today that you were referring to, trying to register their name for a flight that didn't get on those flights. Uh, so people are around. And I actually just spoke with the premier. I ran into her 
at the right. evacuation center and she gave, graciously gave me an interview and she said that she's just urging people to take this seriously and to evacuate so there's too many people that are staying behind. It's hard to put into words what the logistics of trying to evacuate 20, 20 plus thousand people. I know people, some people have left already, but that many people uh, from a place that, uh, let's be honest, it's hard to get out of Yellowknife. It really is. You know, you've got the Great Slave Lake on one side. You've got one road, one road to the south, just a single lane highway and a small airport. Uh, so it is, it's isolated. It's, it's remote. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's far distance to travel, really, to get to any larger centers. And there were three different fires that have really been sort of threatening this area. So a lot of people have been feeling quite boxed in. The one road also has been closed several times for days at a time, even at the beginning of the week, uh, for the past seven weeks and, or seven days and, and several weeks as well. So it's an incredibly unnerving situation, very uncertain. And for the people here who have been watching the devastation and these fires decimate other places like Enterprise, which is a hamlet not too far you know, to the south, as well as you know, the situation in Lahaina, right. this is a very real situation. They're, they're thinking, wow, is this going to be us? Is, are, are we next? What's the mood like? I mean, I saw some of the interviews you did today, and it's a whole mix of emotions, right, from people simply sort of getting on with it to others really feeling the impact, the reality of this. As they, I gather they just packed what they could and headed out to try to find a way out uh, without a vehicle. Yeah, it's been such an array, you know, of, of emotion and how different people are dealing. When I first landed here on Wednesday, I met a gentleman who was actually in the evacuation zone already, and he had been loading up for three days, loading him. He had rented a storage locker in the city and just wow. clearing out his whole house, like, you know, 30 years of things and um, trying to get everything. He just couldn't move this really large generator. And then you have others that, you know, they just have a small rolly suitcase that, you know, like, well, we can rebuild. All that is replaceable. So, you know, we have the things that really matter and, you know, their children, um, but it is, it's, it's just been, it's, there's been a very a heaviness, a lot of tired faces, a lot of tears and eyes, um, just so much uncertainty. And people just feel this sort of immense um, stress even. And, you know, I, I, there was sort of a sense of a little bit of relief from people as well once the evacuation order came into play. Because there's been so much sort of uncertainty and fear lingering, just kind of hanging heavy over people's heads, like, should we go? Should we stay? So now that sort of a decision has been made, I think for some people, they're like, okay, let's just do this. Let's move to the next thing Um, instead of sitting and waiting and agonizing over what's going to happen. Yeah. How about for all those, and, and you know, in a city of 20,000, you have a lot of people who are vulnerable, who don't have the means to move. I was reading a bit today about hospitals. Uh, there's, of course, the unhoused. There are many people who don't have the sort of the, the, the capabilities of packing up and leaving. What about them? How's it going for the for the difficult people to try to move out of that city? Oh, Ben, that's when, you know, that's, that's sort of when I really had, you know, the sort of the, the, the lump in my throat today yeah, is when moment, we, yeah. we did yeah I had that moment today when we saw those people um, and there is so many there are so many of them and you know people with mobility issues um, people um, that uh, yeah th- that are sick we saw people coming out of the hospital you know in wheelchairs or 
um, with young children, uh, people with special needs, absolutely heartbreaking and sitting in this line for, you know, trying to wait for, to be flown out. Now, we did speak with the Rangers and the Premier, and they said that they were prioritizing people with young children, you know, with um, that were higher risk and had higher needs. Um, but, you know, there's some that fall through the cracks, of course, because I saw some still in the line. Um, the Premier said that at least 3,000 people uh, of in the, that fit that category were flown out this afternoon. Um, but of course, there's there's many many still here, um, you know, and just anxious to get out. Anxious, very anxious. Jamie, what, um, what would be your assessment? What, what was the premier's assessment, I guess, and what would be your assessment, having seen it firsthand, about just how effective the evacuation was today? Because the clock really is ticking. We're talking about twelve noon Mountain Time tomorrow. Well, she told me it's going. The evacuation is going slow but steady. <laughs> Um, she said, you know, we're going to keep flying people out as long as the planes are here. You mentioned the military reinforcements that are coming in to help, uh, hoping that that will maybe speed up the process. But this line was about four city blocks long. And then around five o'clock, they came out and they said, uh, you know, you're not all going to get on. So go home and come back in the morning and we'll see what we can do. And they kept you know, maybe one block worth um, to process. So... Yeah, it's a lot, and there's a lot they don't really know. They don't know how many people left in cars. They, they're not, she said, we're not counting. We're not counting. We're just focusing on getting people out. So it's, it's kind of hard to really get a clear picture of, of how it's going or how many people have left because, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's they're fluid, kind of right? learning I mean, as yeah, they go, I, as one I, ranger I, I, said to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, they're they're learning they're learning as they go. You right. know, no one's no one's done this before. Well, Jamie Dahl is with us this half hour from Yellowknife, where there has been an exodus today of thousands of people trying to get out either by road or by air, trying to leave that city ahead of an evacuation deadline tomorrow at noon mountain time as a fire inches closer to the Northwest Territories capital. Uh, Jamie, I, I was reading today, they're not going to force people out. Is, is there any sense that there are people who are going to stay? I understand they, uh, this, that City Hall put out a pretty stern message today urging people to get out, but they may not take uh, actually force people to go. Yeah, they said they're not going to arrest anybody. Um, right. You know, if they're not going to force anyone to stay. Yeah, we've met people here. You know, a lot of them have boats, and they just say, we're just going to push off into the boat if it gets real bad and bring our camping gear and paddle out and, you know, hunker down on one of the little islands out there. So there are definitely are people here who are going to stay. Um, there are people here that are think that this is just, uh, you know, a lot of panic that's unnecessary. So, um, yeah, it'll be, and I think, you know, you know, Ben, that this as well as anyone, you know, covering these types of disasters, that there's always those that do stay, aren't there? Yes, um, always. So, yeah, yeah it, it seems like in every, in every disaster. Exactly. Uh, when so when you no look different. at... No. When you look at uh, at the fire itself, I mean, there's been some predictions today that sounded a little more dire than they were saying a little earlier in the week about the fire potentially uh, arriving at, in Yellowknife by the end of the by the weekend. Uh, it, what is the situation with the fire right now? And can you smell it? Can you feel it? You know, today we woke up and it was just it was so thick. I could smell it uh, from inside our hotel room. 
I actually put on a mask because it was it was so thick and heavy. Uh, but it's been so such a fluid situation. You know, the winds change and then suddenly you have blue sky. Right now we've got you know, cloudy blue sky and then sort of a nice sunset happening, which is so great for the air tankers that are going out. The same thing happened yesterday, and those air tankers really got some great work in, some great suppression work in, and that helped um, immensely, really. Uh, the fire, it, it, uh, it grew an inch closer by two kilometers only, so now it's 15 kilometers on the outskirts of Yellowknife, which, you know, is still... <laughs> The, the danger is very real, but they thought that it would be closer by now. They were actually estimating that it could be within five kilometers by tomorrow, which it still could, um, depending, of course, just on the wind. We had a little bit of rain here, but nothing to, to do anything really to help. It's just a, it's a little too too late for that. Right. So, But the weekend, they're saying by the weekend, this fire could be on the doorsteps of this capital city. Yeah, and I guess tomorrow, I imagine you'll just be seeing... A- what happens before that deadline, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Noon deadline, everyone is supposed to be out, uh, including us. So, you know, we were racing around the city tonight. Uh, we might have pushed it a little too late trying to get gas. Uh, that proved to be difficult, I'll tell you. Right. Tim Lee was celebrating when we finally got a card lock that took a Visa card <laughs> to our photographer. Um and yeah, it was getting a little bit, a little dicey there. Uh, but we we haven't told that they're going to open at least one conventional gas station in the morning. Uh, so I think many people are hoping that's going to be the case. Maybe some who left it a little, a little later. But a lot of long lineups today. People filling up. The city is very quiet this evening. So it's going to be interesting to see. I think a lot of the people that were hoping to fly out. Those are the people that still haven't secured flights. Uh, but tonight, the minister said that they might have to extend into the weekend some of those flights, maybe even Saturday, just depending on how things go. Yeah, I understand there was a few cancellations today, too. The weather wasn't cooperating completely. I mean, again, this is a, a logistical, uh, this is a very difficult logistical process they're going through trying to fly that many people out. Yeah, and you know, those that even are driving south, the smoke was so thick this morning that they had people trying to, escorting people out um, to try to navigate through those dicey areas where visibility was really poor. People are also talking about, you know, you have to drive through some of the fire areas so that you can, can see some flames from the road uh, where you're driving. So that too, you know, if something were to change or the winds were to shift um, and then the, the road becomes closed, then you could be into some trouble here. And I think that's why officials finally last night decided to call this evacuation order because they're like, look, we've got this window of opportunity. We need to start now. This is 20,000 people we're talking about. Well, uh, Jamie, as uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I'll let you get some rest. I know it's been very busy for you. And uh, yeah, we'll keep watching your reporting. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Let's stick with uh, with what's happening in the Northwest Territories and again in BC. I mean, this has been just an unbelievably treacherous wildfire season right across the country, as you well know. And of course, all eyes on Yellowknife tonight as that evacuation continues. Um, Shane Thompson is the Territory's Minister of Municipal and Community Affairs. Uh, here's what he had to say last night about uh, residents having just over a day, a little less than a day now, to get out. I want to be clear that the city is not in immediate danger and there's a safe window for residents to leave the city by road and by air. We are asking all those residents 
to be evacuated by Friday at noon. You put yourself and others at risk if you choose to stay later. Indeed. I mean, this decision was taken uh, late yesterday by the territory uh, as that fire moved. Again, the capital of the Northwest Territory is being emptied. Uh, the wildfires threatened to close the highway out of town. That's one of the big issues. And of course, making fly making flying in and out of there difficult as well. I mean, it is a place that is hard to get in and out of. Fire Information Officer Mike Westwood says there's some hope the weather may cooperate. There is a bit of rain in the forecast, uh, which would be good. Um, and, you know, we're hoping that shows up, but kind of the story of the season has been, uh, rain being on the radar and then, uh, you know, the rug getting pulled on us. Indeed. Uh, there's already been other evacuations further south uh, in places like Hay River, Fort Smith and Enterprise in the Northwest Territories. Uh, and despite the forced exodus of so many thousands of people uh, right across the Northwest Territories, so far things to be, appear to be going as smoothly as one could hope for. Part of that could well be down to communication, although there were some complaints from Yellowknife residents earlier in the week about wanting to see actual plans for any evacuation, how it would actually work, where people should go, uh, because a lot of that is having sort of being done today it seems like it's well coordinated but people a few people today thinking that perhaps this should have been at least the information about where people should go and how how it was going to work should have been offered a little earlier uh and communication has long been an issue when it comes to protecting people from wildfire threats my next guest was the lead author of a study that looked at bc's communication practices during the 2017 and 2018 wildfire seasons and found a lot of room for improvement of course those uh issues have been put to the test again year after year since including this year uh, so are we learning the lessons of the past? Joining me now is Michael Mehta. He's a professor of geography and environmental studies at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. Uh, Michael, thanks so much. Welcome back. Good evening, Ben. Good to be back. I, I mean, you, I'm sure you've been watching what's been going on. I mean, it feels like uh, the communication at least has been pretty decent, but you've been looking at this very closely for a while. Uh, how, would you, how would you assess what's been, what's been happening in the Northwest Territories over the past uh, 40, 48, 72 hours? Well, for, for, for what they're doing and what they're experiencing, I, I give them an A+. plus. I think that uh, they made the right call to get people out proactively like they are. Uh, a little bit of uh, dual messaging, uh, you know, saying the city, of course, is not in imminent danger, but uh, that you need to leave. Sometimes people interpret that the wrong way and decide that uh, they don't really need to act proactively. So it's, it's a really tricky message to get across. You don't want to create fear. And, uh, of course, you've already got a, a very anxious population. It's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, earlier in the week, I, I know I spoke with the mayor. There were some there were some complaints in Yellowknife. People wanted to see the plan. People said, let's see what you're let's see if there is an evacuation. Show us what that means. Show us how it's going to work. So we know. And there were some some complaints that that that, that wasn't done uh, quickly enough. Is that something they should? Because, you know, it, you're right. It is a very delicate balance between, um, you know, sort of sort of well, the coordination of it and putting all your cards on the table right away. Yeah, I don't know if they're able to actually show a plan at that stage because fires, fire behavior can be very dynamic and changeable and it can change direction at any time. Closing off a particular highway or route or even a, a, a fire might approach a city that you were planning to move people towards, as they had happen up there where people were evacuated initially to uh, the capital and then ultimately have to leave there. So uh, I don't think it's necessary to share that level of detail, but it is important to let people know that there, there are places to go and to communicate other things. A lot of people really want to know, for example, what it's going to be like. Can they take their pets? Uh, uh, are they going to be able to get some kind of compensation if they have to stay in hotels? All of those sorts of things are what people want to know. 
Yeah, in, indeed. And it feels like we're getting more and more used to this. One of the things that was interesting, of course, about the Yellowknife situation is just how isolated it is. And that's, I mean, we've seen other fires hit areas that, that are hard to get in and out of, uh, specifically in BC over the past little while. But this was a real, I mean, this is a, you know, a city of 20,000 people, not huge, but big enough. Uh, but it's, its geography must have played a big role in the decision uh, to move everyone out when they did. I think so. And having one single highway that uh, gets in and out, I mean, it's probably the biggest mobilization in Canada's history for an evacuation. Uh, you know, a lot of the evacuations and alerts that we've had in B.C. or in smaller communities, although that may change tonight with uh, what's happening in West Kelowna. There's uh, mm-hmm. a lot going on right there. And, of course, from Kamloops, where I am, we've got a fire that's on our doorstep and has been for months or so on end. It may move very quickly. I'm I'm kind of on a, <laughs> a little bit anxious myself tonight. Where uh, we've been covered in smoke for quite a while, and of course the winds are really blowing heavily in the direction of the city, pushing that fire even closer. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a tough one. Yeah, and it's been hot. It's been hot too. So some of those uh, remembering back a few years to the heat dome, it hasn't been that hot, but but hot enough that conditions feel like. Um, I mean, BC was talking about it today. Fire officials were saying that the next forty eight hours could be really challenging. Uh, how has the communication? I mean, you you've been looking at this. How has the communication been where you are uh, over the past little while with this this threat still on your doorstep? Not that great. Um, I think BC wildfires got their hands full with all kinds of fires, and of course they're spread very thinly. And uh, they're not even keeping people up to date. Uh, if you look at their their app, which uh, I think is wonderful in theory, uh, a lot of people have complained that uh, they're just not getting updates. It, sometimes it's 24 hours or 48 hours or maybe not over a weekend. And I've been actually tracking this fire quite closely when they do put updates on online. And you'll see the fire, in our case, jumping you know, from 3,000 to 7,000, 8,000 hectares with these massive increments with no sort of communication about where it is, how close it is to the city, those kinds of things are missing. You know, I was once told, um, you know, you, you don't want to dust off, you don't want to be dusting off your, your crisis plan uh, when the crisis is happening. And it right. feels like a lot of communities across the country, big and small, are really having to cope with something they didn't have to cope with in the past in a really real, real way, which is what happens when a wildfire shows up on your doorstep. Right. So, the, you know, their, their plans are typically about the mobilization of their resources and the use of the Canadian military and things like that, bringing in firefighters from other countries. But there's also a really important critical piece, namely the communications plan, and how right. you deal with external stakeholders, in, our, in this case, the public, the general public. And that seems to f- fall sometimes short. Uh, there's a reliance on maybe social media to get across some of this messaging. Not everybody's on social media. And, of course, uh, can be distorted and twisted with all the comments and creating confusion. Uh, there needs to be a lot more proactive, upfront communication. I know that does happen in small remote communities uh, where they'll hold town halls and things like that. But in larger city centers like Kamloops or Kelowna, that's uh, not happening. It's uh, logistically more challenging for sure. Right. And I am, I suspect with the fragmentation of media, I mean, there was a day, you know, that there was one media source, right, in a lot of places. Now there's many, many, many media sources and social media. So people uh, tend to go all over, the, all over the place looking for information. And often that's where a lot of uh, misinformation starts to spread yeah, around. Yeah, extra tricky, too, with the, uh, the uh, fa- Facebook now uh, not allowing Canadian media to have their, uh, right. their posts. Uh, you know, a lot of people were relying upon that kind of information. And even about a month or two ago, uh, Twitter, now X, was uh, blocking various communities that were using their platform a little bit too much, they thought, during these emergency situations and not allowing them to update. We, we really need our own solutions now. I'm 
firmly convinced that we, we need to you know, have our own perhaps British Columbia or Canadian social media platform that is specifically geared for these kinds of things. Just for emergencies, yeah. I, was, I mean, ironically, you point out today the city of Yellowknife pointed out that their update tonight on the Northwest Territory wildfire situation uh, was on CPAC or, you know, that you could watch it there. But it says due to the recent changes in legislation, the city is unable to share the link because it's a media source. Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, you know, again, again, I mean, unfortunately, this is always trial by fire, no pun intended for, for a lot of communities, but we're learning on the fly, right? We are. <laughs> Let's just make sure that we don't have that fire going too hot, hot for sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> We're talking about wildfires tonight. Of course, the evacuation continues uh, from Yellowknife. 20,000 people meant to be out uh, tomorrow by midday. Uh, that's the, the notice. And of course, tonight, um, Linda uh, on West Side Road near Kelowna, BC, says she's under evacuation alert tonight in West Kelowna. She sent a picture of a book uh, that was published a while back called The Summer, The Firestorm, The Summer That BC Burned, back from 2003, a, a year that really stands out in BC history. Uh, Michael Meta is with us this half hour, professor of geography and environmental studies at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, another area where it's smoky tonight. Uh, Michael, when you look at what's happened this year, I mean, for people who followed this closely for a long time, like you have, whether it be, you know, whether it be as far a field as Maui or as close to home as where you are or Yellowknife or Halifax. It feels like this year has been a real wake-up call. And one wonders, if you're not an expert in this, what lessons should we be learning this summer? What do we do now uh, to try to mitigate some of this? Yeah, it, it definitely is a, a very extreme year. And of course, it's, it's not one that uh, climate scientists have uh, not predicted for years now. We, we know that next year, with this El Nino cycle that is coming on really hard over the, the coming winter, will probably be worse than this year. So the chance to uh, reflect on the lessons is, is still there. It's, there's still an opportunity to improve. I think one of the main lessons that I've taken away after looking at this kind of issue for uh, more than a decade is that um, we need to more uh, effectively mobilize local resources and local knowledge, including Indigenous knowledge, not only to prevent fires in the first place, but to provide earlier detection of them, to allow communities to uh, battle them if they need to uh, before they, they explode in size. When you have so many fires happening at the same time and you only have you know a few dozen aircraft and limited resources, even though you know Canadian wild, uh, BC Wildfire Service has turned to a, a full-year operation, you can't fight all of them. And so they just keep growing, and some of them grow exponentially. So you, you really have to mobilize the, the public and the communities that are at risk. I guess that's the big lesson we've learned this year. Uh, and it's not one that uh, I, I have no doubt we hadn't learned it in the past, but but that there simply aren't enough people to put out the fires, right? I mean, that's just the, that, that's it. There, there are too many fires and too few firefighters and it's, and it's not, uh, it's not how it's going to happen. So we need to prepare for a different way of approaching this, as you point out. Have we, have we not been doing enough of it in the past? Because I felt like that lesson was something we'd learned even all the way back and, you know, as far back as 2003. No, we haven't. We there's still lots of barriers and restrictions. Um, you, you know, an average person in a community can't just go out and do firefighting. They have to be obviously trained to a certain extent. Right. There are union issues. There are all kinds of issues, insurance issues. Uh, even external contractors. And there are lots of them, even from Alberta, that have wanted to come and fight fires here in BC. Have been blocked for years for doing for doing that. So it, it's not uh, it's not happening. 
Well, uh, how do you start? Then where do where do you start? I guess is the better question. If we're going to try and be better prepared for twenty twenty four, and you know, each year is different. Perhaps next year we'll see a very quiet fire season. It's happened in the past. You have a bad one, then you have a decent one. Uh, but even if we do get a bit of a respite, what should we be doing then uh, to make sure that the next may bad fire season that we have, and you already pointed out with an El Nino uh, year as well, it, it risks being bad. Uh, what should we do to try and uh, to try and improve? We need to really take seriously the, the fire smart campaigns and approaches that are out there and to fireproof our communities. We have to change building code going forward so that uh, homes are built with uh, relatively non-combustible materials. And, you know, you may even want to require in certain areas sprinklers to be built right into rooftops, uh, HEPA filtration built into homes for air purification for the wildfire smoke, which is going to kill more people ultimately than anything else over the, uh, the years. Uh, all of those kinds of things need to be done right away, and uh, if not yesterday. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess in the, in the meantime, we'll be paying close attention to what's happening around you now, because West Kelowna looks bad tonight uh, as well. And then, and then where you are in Kamloops, it's going to be a difficult 48 hours. It is. Uh, we're, as I said, uh, on tenor hooks here. We've got our car and everything ready to go and all our uh, wow. kit set up and our pet, we've had a long conversation with her and tell her what's going on. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it's complicated. You know, I, I really feel for people that uh, have uh, elderly parents, perhaps, living with them, and maybe even children, the, the so-called sandwich generation, the complexity of managing that is significantly more. Uh, we, we really have to look after each other, check on our elderly neighbors in particular, and make sure that they're getting this information. You know, older people are not likely to be on a lot of that platform, those platforms and getting this timely information. And uh, they're not hooked to their, their phones like younger people are. So we have to, you know, really watch out for ourselves. Yeah. And, and just the idea that you too have a bag ready to go and, and reading about people in other parts of the country who've done the same, it feels like this is a... This is the new reality. I mean, we out here, I'm in Victoria, we have emergency kits because, of course, we're in an earthquake zone, but that's been known mm-hmm. for a long time. Uh, but to think that, you know, a lot of Canadians are going to have to have a fire, a fire kit ready to go is, uh, is, a, sobering, is a sobering thought, Michael. It, it is. Well, just for example, two of the things that I have uh, ready to go in my car, which most people wouldn't think of, are fire extinguisher. Uh, just in case you're, you, know, you come across an area on the road that you need to extinguish before you can go through it. And believe it or not, a pair of bolt cutters. Because where bolt I live, cutters. there's only one, yep, bolt cutters. My area, there's only one road in and out of this whole community in Sun Rivers where I live. And the emergency access road, which is a, basically a construction site, is gated off with a locked gate. And there's no way I'm going to be waiting for anybody to open that. If I have to, I'm going to cut that and get everybody out. Michael, so that's as always, changing the yeah. way people think. <laughs> it, it is indeed. Uh, Michael, as always, thanks so much for your thoughts on this tonight. Thank you. Take care, and uh, we'll be in touch. Let's head to Australia and a deadly mushroom mystery. Uh, as one report put it, on July 30th, five people sat down for a lunch of beef wellington pot pie in a town near Melbourne. Within a week, three of them were dead, and a fourth was in hospital in critical condition. Here's CNN's Anna Corrin with some of the details. Police in Victoria, Australia, are investigating the poisoning deaths of three elderly people after they were served a meal believed to contain extremely poisonous death cap mushrooms. Police are trying to determine if the deaths were homicide. At the end of last month, two elderly couples went for lunch at the home of 48-year-old Erin Patterson in the small township of Leongatha. She is the former daughter-in-law of one of the couples. 
Police say she is separated from her husband, who has now lost both his parents from the poisoning. Police say that evening, the guests began showing signs of food poisoning and were admitted to hospital. Days later, 70-year-old Gail Patterson and her sister, 66-year-old Heather Wilkinson, died. A day later, Gail's 70-year-old husband passed away. The fourth guest, Heather's 68-year-old husband, a reverend in the local community, remains in a critical condition. Police say that Erin Patterson is a suspect because she cooked the meal and is the only adult at lunch who didn't fall ill. She has not been charged in the deaths. Her two children were also at lunch but did not get sick because they were served different meals. Anna Korn of CNN pretty much laying it out there. So again, police suspect that the meal contained what are known as death cap mushrooms, one of the most poisonous varieties in existence. Uh, police are investigating the deaths still. There are lots of questions around it, whether it was done intentionally or not. Uh, but all that aside, since it's happening on the other side of the world, back here at home, it's true that the mushrooms suspected of having played a role in those deaths can also be found here at home. Just last month, a young child ingested one of the mushrooms in BC, prompting a warning from the provincial health authority here. Uh, so we thought we'd find out more about death cap mushrooms and their prevalence. Andy McKinnon is the past president of the South Vancouver Island Mycological Society and a speaker and field trip leader for mushroom festivals in BC. Of course, uh, mycology, a branch of biology concerned with the study of fungi. I think I got that right. Andy, thanks. Welcome back. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be back. So tell me, I mean, the first thing I thought of, uh, I'll be honest, when I when I read that, I thought of our conversation when I read that story from Australia. Have you been following it at all? Did it catch your eye? Oh, it certainly caught my eye, Ben. And uh, I, if it d- fails to catch my eye, I certainly have lots of people who will send me emails or Facebook posts to uh, point it out to me. Right. Uh, I mean, this is, we don't know what happened and we won't, uh, we won't be judge and jury on this show for what's going on there. Uh, but the, these are, death cat mushrooms are not something you can generally, I mean, at one point I think uh, she claimed to have bought, bought them in a store and I, I, I can't imagine that would be true. It seems improbable and yet uh, nobody that I know of deliberately eats death cat mushrooms. Uh, the uh, the poisoning from death cap mushrooms almost always is related to mistaking it for some other mushroom. So I suppose it's possible that somehow or other someone mistook death cap mushrooms for an edible species, and uh, that's how they ended up in the Asian market near Melbourne in Australia. It seems a bit of a stretch, but I suppose we'll let the police sort that one out. Yeah, we'll let the detectives do the detecting in this one. But you do a lot of detecting when it comes to foraging and so on. Um, How common are death cat mushrooms? I know there's been stories here in the past. I believe there was even a really serious incident in BC not that long ago in the last decade or so. Uh, How common are they? Where do they grow here? Well, uh, they are native to... uh, uh, Europe, widespread across Europe into North Africa, uh, down into parts of Asia from the, the uh, Scandinavia and the British Isles through Poland, Russia, and uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, they're introduced 
around the world. So they're introduced in North and South America, introduced into Southern Africa. Uh, so they're not an uncommon mushroom. Their distribution is global. And, and here in British Columbia, they're uh, seasonally abundant uh, around uh, Greater Vancouver, up the Fraser Valley, around Victoria and across southern Vancouver Island and less commonly in the Gulf Islands. So it, it's not, the death cap is not an uncommon mushroom, but everywhere we see it in the Americas, it's an introduced species. Right. Uh, do we see them elsewhere in Canada as well? Yes, yeah. The yeah, death yeah. cap has also been introduced to the east coast of North America, and we know the death cap mushroom from several of the maritime provinces also. The name pretty much gives it away, but but just how deadly is it? Or just how poisonous is it, I should say? Well, there are other mushrooms that are at least as poisonous as the death cap, but the death cap is abundant and widespread, and we suspect that perhaps as many as three-quarters of the fatal mushroom poisonings worldwide are caused by this one species. There are at least 20,000 species of mushrooms worldwide. So to have one species responsible for uh, at least three-quarters of the fatal poisonings is quite astonishing. It is. Uh, why is that? Is it because they, they're, they're so common? Do they look like something else? Uh, they do. They do. A very common feature of death cap mushroom poisonings is that whoever got poisoned or collected them and served them up uh, mistook them for an edible mushroom. Sometimes the uh, Asian patty straw mushroom, which you can buy dried in Asian markets, um, sometimes a mushroom called the white Caesar, which is a delicious edible in the same genus. Um, so, yeah, there are mushrooms that people can and do mistake them for, thinking that they're going to get a delicious edible and they get a death cap mushroom instead. And, in fact, by all accounts, death cap mushrooms are quite delicious. It's just that you die an extraordinarily painful death afterwards. Uh, with yeah. respect to how poisonous they are, uh, generally, one mushroom cap is probably sufficient to kill an adult human, and a portion of that cap would be enough to, to kill a child. Uh, there was um, a uh, young lad who uh, died, a three-year-old died in 2016 right. in uh, Victoria from eating a death cap mushroom. Yeah, that was the case that I was uh, that I was thinking about uh, when I was talking about it earlier. What is the what is it in them? I mean, to understand just the the the, the I guess the biology of it. What is it? What is the poison? What, how does it react with us? What is it that we're consuming? Yeah, there are um, a number of different poisonous mushrooms, and they have different sorts of toxins in them. Among the most deadly toxins are a group of toxins called the the amatoxins, uh, which are kind of ring-shaped peptide structures. 
Um, and the phellotoxins, which are similar in structure to the amatoxins. And they both work at a cellular level, so they, they stop your cells from functioning properly. And uh, the results are usually, uh, the serious results are usually somewhat delayed, so that people who eat death caps will oftentimes experience, well, a, a delightful taste, apparently, initially, uh, followed by abdominal pain, vomiting, and diarrhea within 6 to 12 hours, and then they'll feel a lot better. Right. And uh, can feel fine for two or three days or longer, all the while their liver and kidneys are being destroyed uh, by these toxins so that by the time the, the symptoms reappear, the person is in very serious condition. Um, and so that doesn't help in the prognosis. Uh, people are initially ill, um, you know, from both ends of their body, and then they feel better and can feel better for days. By the time the symptoms reappear, they generally require hospitalization and maybe past saving. Mandy McKinnon is with us. He is a mushroom expert. Uh, that's not the techn technical term, not the scientific term, but we'll use it because it's appropriate. We're talking about this. We have been talking about this deadly mushroom mystery in Australia where three people were, uh, three people have died. One is in a hospital in a critical condition after eating what officials suspect were death cat mushrooms baked into a beef wellington pot pie back on July the 30th. And uh, this has become a big mystery in uh, Australia, certainly the circumstances around the case. It's not known whether the person who baked it, who uh, who didn't, uh, who survived, who cooked the meal, did it on purpose or not. So that's the big mystery. But we've been talking about death cat mushrooms themselves because, of course, they exist in parts of Canada and pretty much all around the world as well. And as Andy was pointing out, uh, they're responsible for the vast majority of, uh, of mushroom poisoning deaths. Uh, Andy, lots of people, as you well know, because you, 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 you deal in this. Lots of people like to go out foraging these days. It's, it seems to have taken up, uh, become more popular of late than it had been for quite a while. And uh, I guess people should know, uh, should, should figure out what it is they're foraging, especially when it comes to fungi. And I would say not even especially when it comes to fungi, because a lot of foragers are collecting wild plants as well. And whether you're foraging for plants or for fungi, you should know what the, the species you're looking for uh, look like, smell like, taste like, and you should also know the species that resemble them to some degree and might not be good to eat. That applies to, to mushrooms, but it, it certainly applies to your listeners who would be foraging for wild plants as well, Ben. Yeah, what is the best way? What are what are the, what is the? I mean, I, I suppose simply bringing a guide and, and studying, right? Knowing what you're doing uh, is probably the most important thing to do. But what are some tips that you have for people who might want to go out and forage a bit? Yeah, I'll disagree with you slightly on that one. In that, I think the best way to learn any group of organisms, be it birds or plants or mushrooms, is to go out with people who. Uh, are similarly enthusiastic and who know 
those right. organisms a bit better. Uh, it's important to have a good ha- a good guide handy, but I think more importantly is getting together with others through foraging groups, natural history societies. If you happen to be close to a, a mycological society, a mushroom club, that would be probably the best for mushrooms. And just get out there with people who know the organisms. And I think that's the, the single best way to learn them. Uh, it's good to have a good guide for reference, but I think it's more important if you have the opportunity to get out with people who know these organisms and see them in the field with some people who have been at this for a while. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what you do, right? I mean, you do you do help people with things like this. Oh, absolutely, yes. We have... Uh, uh, I'm a member of the South Vancouver Island Mycological Society, which is based in Victoria. So we spend a lot of time on on forays, on on mushroom exploration trips. There are mushroom courses, uh, mushroom classes, mushroom festivals and shows, all kinds of mushroom events, which if you happen to live in southwestern Vancouver or southwestern British Columbia, you could find more about on the websites of the South Vancouver Island or Vancouver Mycological Societies. But I I know you have listeners across uh, Canada, across North America, so everybody should have um, a natural history society somewhere in your province, and that's oftentimes a good place to start. Right. And I guess as sad as this case is, and, and as mysterious as this uh, event in Australia is, it, it, again, it raises awareness about some of the, some of the dangers as well, which, is, it, which in of itself is never, um, is, it's always worth reminding people of. I think it's always worth reminding people. We, we try to remind people here on southern Vancouver Island as autumn approaches each year to, uh, to learn a little bit about mushrooms if you intend to go out and collect some for the table and uh, the the death cap mushrooms uh, strangely enough around victoria are one of the first mushrooms to show up uh, at the end of each summer uh, because they grow in a they're a european mushroom introduced here they grow most commonly with european street trees in areas that people water. So it's been very dry for a very long time here on southern Vancouver Island, but the the sorts of trees that the death cap mushrooms grow with around Victoria are regularly watered by the city and by homeowners, so they're not suffering through the drought like a lot of our other mushrooms. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. It's been a lot of fun. Every time I go grocery shopping, I think the same thing. Wow, prices are high. They've come down a little bit. They've come down a little bit on some things, but I was noticing today they're just they weren't a lot. I go to one grocery store because I can walk there from work then walk home, so it's pretty quick. And uh, there just wasn't much on sale this week, and I thought, wow, it's the middle of the summer and things are still expensive. Like I mean, it's the growing season, right? Things are supposed to be plentiful and not too expensive, but they're not. Um, so always looking for hints. I, I'm I'm pretty frugal. I, I tend to buy stuff on sale and try to try to make 
make dollars stretch. But you know, you all of us need a bit of advice on how to shop and how to make meals that are uh, that take advantage of all the things we leave behind in the fridge, right? So to speak. Although we don't leave too too much, but um, you know, at a time when we're all feeling uh, the pinch due to soaring grocery prices, it's no wonder that uh, Nova Scotia social media TikToker, uh, if you want to use that term, has become so popular. Her motto is a pretty straightforward one, perhaps one that you practice yourself or know well called We Use What We Have, and she's been helping her followers save a lot of money on groceries. Uh, she has nearly 500,000 followers. Uh, she makes these little videos. They're they're actually quite entertaining because she just she does them as if she, you just popped into her kitchen and sat down. Um, you know, the kids, she has three kids. They're kind of running around making noise. You don't see the kids, but you certainly hear them. And, uh, you know, she just describes about how she shops, how she makes food, and how she makes these kind of easy, no-fuss meals, despite, you know, all that she has on her plate. Uh, here's a little taste of what uh, of what it sounds like online. Let's talk about how to save money on groceries. And this is going to be a mini series refresher, if you will. If you've seen me before, you probably know me as the use what we have girl. And let me explain to you why this works. You've probably heard to shop your pantry first and make your meal plan that way. And that's also a good way to start. But my whole philosophy revolves around substitutions, finding alternatives at home instead of running to the store when you realize you're missing an ingredient for a recipe. There she is. Alex McLaren is her name. Mac.Lorena on TikTok. 480,000 followers. Lots of people watch her for tips. Substitutions. Well, I grew up in a house where you used a lot of substitutions and sometimes they did not work out, but it is a good idea. Uh, so we thought we'd talk to her about the success of what uh, of, of her TikTok uh, page, what she has to say, get some, uh, get some secret recipes from her as well, some firsthand tips. So Alex McLaren joins me now. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Congratulations, by the way. This has been a big, a big success, uh, and it it kind of started like all many successful things, just kind of by accident, right? Um. Yeah. Well. Yes and no. I mean, I had an Instagram account for years, as I think most people did. Um. And a friend of mine was like, "Hey, you should be posting your stuff on TikTok. It's going to do way better. Like the style of content that you're posting is what people are consuming over there." And so I started, and she was absolutely right. You know, it just took off. So. And no wonder, I mean, you must see the same thing. I felt like in the last maybe two, three years, any trip to the grocery store can be jaw-dropping. You know, I mean, just yeah. the price, sometimes you look at the price and go, oh my God, who would pay that for a call? Last week. Yeah, yeah. It, it goes up. Sometimes the prices change weekly. And I have noticed in the past year, some things have gone back down a bit because some of it was supply chain stuff. But for the most part, just in general, everything has gone up. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of your approach, and I know there's a mantra that uh, that I'll let you talk about because it's uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, but really, you you have just an approach to things, and I think it's really interesting because it's a bit like having a fitness routine, right? You sort of you train yourself to think about how you prepare meals in a different way. Yeah, so it's just about using things that you already have at home instead of running to the store. So if you've got a recipe that you're you're about to make and you're missing one ingredient, like don't run out to the store. First of all, that's going to take you what half an hour to get there, shop, get back. Second of all, you're not going to leave with just the one item. You're going to leave with more because we all impulse buy. And, you know, you could have probably just substituted something else you had at home and it would have been fine. And often you can even just omit if you have most of the ingredients for a recipe and you don't have one, a lot of the time it's fine. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because it sounds so obvious, right? Like it sounds logical that you shouldn't be out. Everyone, I think most of us have a cupboard full of things they bought, you know, some strange spice to use once. And then you never, you, yeah. stare, at, you stare at it for years, watching it sort of slowly go. I don't know. I guess they don't go bad, but slowly sit there. Yeah. Ignored. Uh, but, but it's the confidence level here, right? I mean, part of it is not knowing how to substitute. Exactly. And the more you do it, the more it becomes second nature. But that's the fun of the videos is that I'm always missing something. There is never a recipe <laughs> where I have all of the ingredients that would have been in the recipe. So you can catch the the substitutions as I'm making them. But of course, everybody is like, oh, well, you know, the other day I did this and you would have been so proud. And I substituted white vinegar for apple cider vinegar and like nobody noticed. So the more you do it, the more you become confident because you realize that, oh, actually the recipe is fine. Like it's just supper. It doesn't have to be that serious. Tell me what you have some great names for some of your, uh, some of your recipes that I was, that I was listening to. There's a uh, clean out the fridge, fried rice, garbage soup. I like all of those. It's yeah. uh, how do you go about making those? Uh, well, the garbage soup is literally garbage soup. I didn't come up with that name. That's that's common knowledge. I mean, people yes. call it different things, you know. Um, leftovers, I, we used to call them leftovers. Yeah, leftover yeah. soup or yeah. clean out the fridge soup or whatever. But it's really just rake the garden and throw it all in there. Um, you know, throw a can of condensed tomato soup and some broth in and let it simmer. It's going to come out. It's going to be soup. It's It's going to be fine. I don't have kids. So one of the things that I've found when you go grocery shopping these days is it's expensive to prepare healthy meals, right? I mean, it just is. Vegetables are expensive. Uh, a lot of the things we we would rely yeah. on are expensive. One of the reasons these videos have been so successful, I managed is you sort of find ways to try to save some money and you save a lot of money, by the way. Yeah. Well, one thing for sure, like you said, you know, produce is expensive. So let's not waste any of it because when you bought it, if you throw it out, you still have to consume the same volume of food, right? Which means you're just repurchasing more food. So if you're able to reduce your waste, that's like the quickest way to spend less money. And so it's just trying to look at your fridge. One of the things that I, I started doing is putting together a use first bin. So you can just throw everything that, you know, look at your fridge once a week and go, what are the things that are coming near date or my produce that's getting a little wrinkly that I need to use right away and throwing it all in that bin, stick it at the front of the fridge. And then it's in your face all the time. And you can say like, well, what can I make with this? And so just finding ways to include those ingredients in meals you're already making. So if you're making, like I said, fried rice and, you know, normally you would use frozen vegetables, well, maybe you're going to, you know, chop those up and use them and make sure they don't go to waste. So that that's a huge way to save your money at the store is literally to just buy less, right? Yeah. And one of the things I, I always run into issues with is sometimes we buy things we think we should be eating, but have a long history of not, you know, I, for some reason, right. if I buy apples out of season, I never eat them because they're too soft. Right. Or I don't like right. the taste. You know, there's this idea that you buy things out of habit or you buy things because you think I really should be eating, you know, I should be eating fennel and you think, well, I'm right. never going to, I'm never going to eat this. So it's, I guess, avoiding some of those yeah. mistakes. Do so you said when you go grocery shopping, you're able to just change gears in the store if you see things that you think, okay, this isn't going to work. Everything's too expensive. Yeah. I mean, and that comes again with the practice, right. Of thinking like there are certain meals that really lend themselves to working with anything. So like you said, the fried rice, but soup, pasta, stew, like these are all things that you can kind of put anything in and they're all going to work out. So if, if I have, I don't know, chicken Parmesan is in my, in my meal plan and I've got the chicken at home, but I'm looking at the Parmesan and it's way too expensive. I might say, well, you know what? we're going to have chicken mozzarella instead. That's right. fine. It'll be fine, right? It's close enough. Or I might say like, scrap that meal altogether. We'll just throw together a pasta that day. Like we'll sort it out and we'll use the chicken next week. At this point in time, you must have an incredible feedback loop 
uh, with those with those nearly five hundred thousand followers. I imagine people. You were saying people literally text you and say you'd be so proud of me. I used this instead of that. Yeah. Yes. Now I also have Instagram, right? So like right. I'll I have people coming into my DMs on Instagram and being like look what I did or they'll start posting in their stories. Like I made this and they tag me and like, I didn't have this ingredient and I subbed that. So yeah, it's been really neat um, to see that feedback loop. Like it's just incredible to see how something that I kind of developed over the years as a mindset, which is not like a new idea. I, you know, your grandma probably did this. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, it, absolutely. Yeah. If you grew up during the depression, you did this, right? You knew yeah. how this worked. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But it's just incredible to see like how much of a difference it's making Alex McLaren is, uh, you'll find her on TikTok, Mac.Lorena. Uh, she has nearly 500,000 followers offering really interesting tips about grocery shopping, uh, recipes. Uh, all her videos feature her young children somewhere in it. It's not like watching something on university access television. Uh, it's very much uh, a mum at work, a mum at work in the kitchen coming back with your groceries. I was interested in this 10-day uh, shop thing that you're doing. I guess you're trying not to go to the grocery store too often because when you do logically you spend more money than you want to mm -hmm. yeah so technically like every time you go um you you go in with the list and often we stray from the list and we see some sales and we pick up extra things and not only that but the gas prices have gone up a lot too so right. um and i mean i've got my three kids home with me for the summer and that's quite a lot to juggle within the grocery store let's just say so <laughs> um so i'm right. trying I'm experimenting because I'm the type of person that typically if my kids have a sport or whatever, that's when I pick up my stuff. So, you know, we go to sport A and on the way home, we grab 50 bucks worth of groceries. Um, and I, I do pretty well with that, but I'm trying to see if I can be more intentional and go a longer period and just plan a little bit better. Because as you'll see in my videos, things get quite chaotic. You know, you never see the kids, but you hear them. <laughs> Yes, they are. They are a constant. They are background uh, or, or BG, yeah. background noise, as we used to say. But, it, but a really important, because ultimately, this is why you're doing it, right? I mean, it's expensive to raise a family these days. You have three kids, you want to feed them well, and you want to do it without absolutely bankrupting yourself as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but what are some of the rule, rules of thumb that you have just to, to, get, to get yourself going when it comes to, to adopting, learning what you have to teach, so to speak? Uh, so one thing that you can do that anybody can do is to do an inventory of what you've got on hand. And then from that inventory, try to think of, you know, three, five, 10 meals that you can make with those things without going shopping and just start from there because it's incredible to see what you can make out of things that you've already got when you really sit down and think of it. And a lot of the time we don't even realize what is in our cupboards, what's in the bottom of the freezer at the back, you know, things that we've forgotten about that could go freezer burnt, that could go spoiled. Um, so that that's the first place that I would start is really shopping your pantry and doing the activity of actually writing out not just what do I have, but what can I make with this? Do you have any go-to appliances? I noticed in one, uh, often you have an Instapot. We have an Instapot. We use it all the time. Uh, there must be things that you can get now that help you help you along the way with with this as well. You don't have to simply rely on pots and pans. Yeah, so the Instant Pot is is a great one. Um, a lot of people like slow cookers. I do have a slow cooker, uh, but I would say I use my Instant Pot the most. Um, if you're trying to save time in the, in the kitchen, you can get a mini food processor to do your chopping for you. That's super helpful, and a lot of them are dishwasher safe. I don't use my air fryer a ton because of the noise that it does in the videos. 
Yeah. Um, oh, so is that why? Because I hear it. One time you had to point it out in one of the one of the videos. Uh, yeah, I, I said, "Oh, that's my Instapot." It was not my Instapot. I mean, it, or it was not my. That's my air fryer. It was not right. my air fryer. I mean, the air fryer was running and it was loud to me, but right. everybody could only hear the kids. So oh. that was <laughs> like a go. whole joke in the end. But you still, I mean, if you had to turn the camera off, would you? Would it yes. be a, something convenient to use? It is very convenient in terms of. I find it convenient for reheating meals. I haven't done a ton of cooking from scratch with it. Yeah, it's. I mean, the fact that that so many people need and and find this advice so useful these days, it says a lot about our grocery bills. But I mean, it also says a lot just about not wasting stuff, right? I mean, the sort of that's been another part of this is we're we're trying not to waste and throw away as much stuff. We throw away such. Yeah. We did a story a few weeks ago on this. Such an unbelievable amount of food still to these day this to this day. Yeah, and I mean, there's not there there's a lot that you can do in terms of preparation to reduce your waste. That's really not that difficult, especially the big thing that I do is I freeze things before they go bad. So, you know, if you're somebody who buys a bag of um, mixed baby greens or container mixed baby greens to make salad every week, and every week you're throwing out a slimy container of mixed salad greens, because I think this is a really relatable one, start buying baby spinach instead, because baby spinach can be frozen, right? Ah, I didn't know that. Three days in, you've made one salad, you're over the salad, stick the whole container in the freezer. You don't have to do anything to it. And then you can take it and throw it in your omelets. You can throw it in your soup. You can throw it in your pasta sauce. Like that is one thing. Um, Other things, like any vegetables that you're you're not ready to eat and they're going to go off on you or even fruit, chop it up, you know, fruit, chop it up, stick it in a a Ziploc bag or a container that can go into your smoothies. It can go into your oatmeal. Um, Any veggies can go into spaghetti sauce, stir fry, whatever. And green onions in water. I noticed green onions in water. I didn't know that trick. Yeah, stick the whole thing. You got to make sure you buy the ones with the roots. Otherwise, it won't work, obviously. But um, if you get the ones with the roots, and they usually come with it, chuck it in a glass, stick it on your windowsill. They're going to keep growing. You do have to change out the water every couple of days. Well, Alex, this has been a very informative, uh, as I expected it to be. Thanks so much, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Bruce the Verbalist is a fan of crossword puzzles, which I am. Me too. I've been doing them since 1958. Back then, we called them alphabet hotels because every letter gets its own little room. <laughs> I still do the Springfield Shopper puzzle every day. Grandpa, everyone knows that the only real test of scale is the New York Times puzzle, edited by Will Shorts. Will and Shorts, two things I'm no longer allowed to change by myself. (laughs) You know, you can always find something on The Simpsons if you're looking to talk about a topic. So when I went looking for something to tee up a a conversation today about puzzles, uh, needless to say, there was uh, Grandpa Simpson with his crossword. Lisa, of course, in that episode becomes a crossword puzzle fanatic and grandpa of course pulls out his local paper crossword puzzle and shares it with her as you just heard um and it it reminded me because the whole point of this story is i was back in montreal last week and i got a chance to spend some time with family including uh my 98 year old aunt she turns 99 uh early next month and um she always she still does 
online puzzles. She does puzzles, obviously, in the paper because she still gets the paper, uh, the Wonder Word and uh, the Sudoku and the Crossword Puzzle. And she still does games online as well. And it's something that her sister, my grandmother, um, used to also tell me when I was young. I used to always ask her why she did the Crossword Puzzle because it always looked like something that took a lot of time. And she said it was to keep her mind sharp, right? And my great aunt says exactly the same thing. So it's kind of family lore on that side of the family, this idea that doing puzzles, whether they be on paper or online, uh, helps keep the memory sharp. Um, Clearly, it's uh, something that people wanted to look into, and now some people have. Um, It's been done before, of course. One of the issues that they're looking at is why is it that our memory and our ability to concentrate changes a bit as we get older? Um, And you know, what are, are there any exceptions to it? What, what could be behind it? Are there things that we're good at? Um, and one of the things they found is that um, the way you can preserve, even improve perhaps cognition as we get older is to do simple brain games, right? Stuff online like Sudokus or shape things or anything that demands that you focus, concentrate and solve something. Um, one of the interesting parts of this is they actually started off by trying to figure out why younger people who play a lot of video games, action games, so to speak, uh, showed some of the same cognitive improvements. So they wanted to figure out why that was. Was it the game or was it the strategy behind the game? Um, And so we thought we'd reach out and figure out what this was all about. Uh, Because, of course, for me, it was personal. It was part of the family lore that doing these puzzles helps helps you out. I certainly do them all the time. It's one of my, uh, you know, I do Wordle every day. And I still do crossword puzzles if I have time and so on, because not just because they keep your mind sharp, because you like them, right? And that's part of the issue here with the science, is that we don't really know the cause and effect. Do people who have a better ability to concentrate, I'm not saying I do, but if people have a better ability to concentrate um, and memorize things, do they prefer, are they attracted to games like that, therefore they do them, right? Uh, Well, we don't know. It's sort of a chicken or an egg argument. That's an entirely different puzzle, by the way. Fiona McNabb is a lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of York. She's co-author of the research that I am talking about, and Fiona McNabb joins me from the UK now. Fiona, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) I was mentioning that in my family, at least on my dad's side of the family, uh, the women who live long lives uh, and stay sharp as a tack for, for most of them, I've always sworn by doing puzzles, uh, mostly by pen, you know, crossword puzzles and wonder words and so on. But I guess uh, online is just as useful. Um, it turns out that they were absolutely right. Or at least it seems like they were absolutely right. It does keep the mind sharp. It seems that way, yeah. So um, we did this study because we were interested in um, a lot of research that had been done on action games. So uh, this research has suggested that people, uh, younger adults who play action games, seem to have better attention and uh, working memory. And um, so we were interested uh, because there are a lot of hybrid games. So action games would also involve things like uh, strategy elements and puzzle elements. So we wanted to know exactly what it was about the games that seemed to be linked to higher working memory and attention. Uh, I should say working memory, that's the ability to uh, hold information in mind for a very short time. Right. Um, And we found uh, that it wasn't actually the action elements of these action games um, that uh, predicted better working memory um, and attention. It was, in fact, the strategy elements for younger adults. Uh And for older adults, it seemed to be puzzle game playing that was linked with um, better working memory and attention. 
Interesting. I, so so I, I, it's, I suppose that would make sense. So it's not really the, the, the action of the action games. It's basically how you strategize the action game uh, that works. And I suppose, I mean, at least in my experience, um, older folks don't play a lot of action games. They do play a lot of puzzle games, though. How does it work? Why, why is it uh, good, for the, good for memory and good for concentration? So we should be a bit careful. So we can't actually say that um, playing these games improves your memory or right. your attention. So it might be that people who have a good working memory and a good attention, um, good attention, they choose to play these games. They might right. find them that more enjoyable. Or, uh, so, so we don't know at this stage. Um, but what our research has done is to try and identify which elements um, would be the starting point. So if we were going to go on and do an intervention study and give people certain games to play and see if it improves their working memory and attention, then we know from this study that we should really look at strategy elements for younger people and puzzle puzzle games for older people. Right. And and you mentioned part of it too, which is interesting because I've used the word memory a lot, but but it, it was the concentration element that was really important as well. Yeah, so we looked at different types of attention. There are all different kinds of attention. Um, so with action games, uh, people have tended to look at um, sort of fast-paced attention, responding to things that come up, um, things that you would do in typically in action games. Uh, so we can't really say too much about the types of attention we didn't look at, uh, but we looked at attention in the context of working memory. So people had to hold in mind the positions of some uh, circles on the screen, and then they got some other ones to ignore. Um, and, and we looked specifically at how well they could um, attend to the relevant things and ignore the, the distracting things. It's interesting because you tested both younger and older uh, people on different kinds of games as well. Um, I suppose improve, you can't use the term improve, but you certainly found that correlation. Uh, one of the, I mean, this is coming from the reporting on it, so it may or may not be 100% correct. Um, but you seem to have found that concentration memory levels in those who play puzzle games who are older was uh, quite was similar to those who are younger who don't. That's right, yeah. So with the older adults who play puzzle games, we found equivalent working memory to uh, the younger adults, the 20-year-olds, who, were um, who weren't playing any games. Interesting. Now, where do you go from here on this? Because, again, you know, I, th I think within um, sort of within society, there's often, this is often talked about, the idea that puzzle games improve your memory. But you're right. Maybe it's just people with good memories and who can concentrate like puzzle games. So, so I, I get the point that there's not, there can't be a direct link. But where would you take that from here? Uh, so I think we need some intervention studies. I mean, there have been some, and uh, there have been some on um, action games in particular, uh, but a few on, on other types of um, game. So really, I think now we need to um, do an intervention study. So ask people who don't usually play games to take up some uh, strategy game if they're younger or puzzle game if they're older, uh, and then monitor them over time and uh, see what that does for their working memory and attention. I'm also keen to look at other types of attention as well, uh, and we've started doing that already. Uh, to see if this is a widespread attention effect or just specific to our our measures of attention. I guess what's what's really interesting about this is we're all fully aware that um, that as you get older, your memory change, or at least your seem feels like your ability to to memorize things or or uh, concentrate seems to wane a little bit. And I guess it's interesting to look at it this way because. Uh, it, it, you're looking to answer some some pretty fundamental questions as well that go far beyond the idea of gameplay. That's right. So. Um, uh, so it's been known for a long time, working memory uh, tends to decline as we get older. Um, that might be because of, uh, because of attention. So it might be because um, we find it harder to focus on relevant information and exclude that irrelevant information. Uh, so we know that people who have good working memory, they're really good at ignoring distraction and only remembering what they need to remember um, and, and ignoring those distractors. 
So um, we've done some research in the past looking at different types of attention. So you can ignore, you can have distractions to ignore as you put information into working memory. Uh, we call that encoding distraction. But you could also have distraction that comes along when you're holding the information in mind. So it's already in memory. Uh, we call that delay distraction because it happens during the working memory uh, delay. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, we think that uh, from this previous research that we did, we think that um, as we get older, these different types of uh, attention are affected. Uh, so um, delay distraction and encoding distraction tend to decline as we get older, but delay distraction seems to be particularly hit. And then we looked at what predicts working memory. So what seems to be like the limiting factor for working memory? And um, more and more, it's the encoding uh, distraction as we get older. So there are interesting age effects. So, and I think this suggests that the way we hold information in mind changes. So it's not just as we get older, things get worse. It's the way we hold information in mind right. and the types of mechanisms we're employing uh, to do that change as we get older. So that's why we're, we're interested in um, this difference between strategy and puzzle games. So uh, we don't know whether puzzle games are better suited to an old, the, the way an older adult holds information in mind or uh, there are a whole load of possibilities but it's it's interesting to think that um it could be because there's some fundamental difference in in how we hold information in mind interesting so that perhaps the way we hold information evolves as we get older perhaps we're able to discard we discard things quicker that we don't think are relevant but keep other things that aren't perhaps um or not yeah. <laughs> Or I'm not, not sure. <laughs> yeah, or not. Uh, I mean, people who hear this will want it will say, you know, I should maybe I should take up puzzle games. Uh, and and I guess I should specify what kind of puzzle games are we talking here? I mean, there are many kinds of puzzle games, right? Yeah. So we only looked at digital games. We only asked people about digital games, but um, people were talking about uh, playing Wordle, for example, or mm -hmm. um, kind of bubble games. People were playing Sudoku, online crosswords, um, all, all these kinds of things. Right. Is, is does, do these uh, do these mantras exist in your family as well? Is that part of you're interested in it as well? Have you heard these things in the past that doing puzzle games are good? Keep the brain sharp. Uh, no, not really. No, no. <laughs> you just wanted <laughs> to. Games. Really, to yeah. <laughs> We've been talking about this in my family for years. Uh, Fiona McNabb, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much.